Lord, you created everything, everything that we see and, and the unseen things as well, Lord. And so, God, we, we get to come to you now with the incredible privilege of praying and partnering with you through prayer uh, to ask you to move. God, you've given us uh, a level of, of power and a level of dominion as image bearers of yours and as your church redeemed by the blood of your son. Uh, you've given us the, the incredible privilege of, of praying to you and partnering with you to bring your kingdom here on earth. Lord, why else would you have taught us to pray for your kingdom come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? So we, we come and we pray for our city. Lord, there are hundreds of thousands, even millions of people in greater Boston who get up this morning and do not know you. They do not know grace. They don't know the incredible love that you have displayed for them through your son, Jesus. We pray that you would begin a revival and a renewal through your church, God, that every church that would gather this morning under the banner of the gospel of Jesus would, would experience a fresh and a new anointing of your spirit. God, that you would bring revival here, renewal here, Lord, set people free from sin, set people free from bondage, from, from shame and guilt and fear and anxiety and loneliness and all of the brokenness, God, that is rampant across this city, Lord, both highly visible and behind closed doors. Lord, our city needs you. It thinks it needs more money. It thinks it needs more success or more power or more control or more education or more research, but this city needs you. It needs the name of Jesus to be great here. So we ask you humbly, Father, in the name of Jesus, bring your kingdom here. This week, move through your churches as we pray together. And may you do something that only you can get glory for. In your perfect name we pray, amen. All right, we're a few weeks into the book, but we are already answering some major questions that, that human beings have. Who are we? Where did we come from? Why are we here? Uh, what is the vision or, or purpose of life? Uh, the truth is everyone answers these questions. It's not just, you know, uh, on a Sunday uh, that people think through these questions. People answer these questions even if they don't consciously ask them. If you don't stop and actually think about these questions, you subconsciously absorb different ideas about these, uh, these questions. And people often don't stop to consider them, to consider, who am I? What is a human being? Why am I here? What's the purpose in life? They don't stop to consider those things until their preconceived notions or ideas that they've absorbed crash into reality in some way. And all of a sudden, they become disenchanted. So the person who thinks that, that success is, is my God and that's why I'm here and that's my purpose and all of a sudden they don't get the promotion. They don't get that job. They don't land in that, uh, get uh, accepted into that program and all of a sudden they're shaken and they begin to ask those questions. The beauty is that as Christians, God gives us his word to um, root ourselves in. But there are largely two predominant views in our city. 
Um, one you could describe as just a secular humanist approach, which is materialistic in its nature. It means human beings ultimately are the species that manage to climb the evolutionary ladder through uh, natural selection and survival of the fittest. Uh, we just happen to ascend to the top, um, and we are just largely uh, highly evolved animals. Um, and, and these things are hardwired into our genes. People decide meaning of life for themselves. There's no objective meaning. There's no real meaning anyone can point to and say that's the meaning. If we were to actually try to do that from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, the highest we could get is your job is to select a mate, procreate, and further the species. That would be the most objective meaning that, that can come from a purely uh, materialistic, secular, humanist approach. That's one approach, and I would argue uh, there are people in this city who seek to live that approach out, that way of thinking about meaning of life and purpose of life and and where we came from. Uh, And I have to say, I respect, I have a certain level of respect for a person who can organize their entire life around this, that there is no uh, real love. You don't love your kids, you're you're programmed by your genes to, to find them desirable and, and to care for them. You don't objectively love them. You don't even objectively love your spouse. You were, you were somewhere along the way. Your genes called out to you and said, this is an appropriate mate for you to connect with and to further the species. That's super romantic, right? It's ironic that some of these scientists, even at uh, Harvard and MIT, who do hold to this will admit that in their personal lives, that's not how they live. Why? Because it clashes with reality but they can't change their mind. Marvin um, Minsky, who used to be a professor at MIT considered the, and is considered the father of artificial intelligence, he said, the physical world provides no room for freedom of will. Yet, that concept is essential to our models of the mental realm. Too much of our psychology is based on it for us to ever give it up. And so, we're virtually forced to maintain that belief even though we know it's false. So if something is fundamental to reality and the functioning in the world, but you know it's false, how do you know it's false? Francis Schaeffer responds, he says, although man may, uh, he was one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century. If you've never heard of him, I just want to make sure you know his name because he's definitely one of the greatest thinkers, uh, Christian thinkers in the 20th century. He said, although man, he said, although man um, uh, may say that he is no more than a machine, his whole life denies it. The beauty is that as Christians, we get to affirm a different framework. We are not at the mercy of, uh, of, of pure science to explain uh, our worldview. And, and the beauty is as Christians, we get to enjoy science. We get to celebrate science. We get to enjoy good research because that's, uh, if you're not aware, the scientific uh, method uh, incubated grew up in the Christian worldview. Because the idea was that God has created men and women to practice dominion over the world. And one of the ways we practice dominion is knowledge, getting knowledge and insight into how God, uh, how the world operates and the things around us. Uh, And in fact, many great, I said this the first week, but there are many uh, great scientists today who hold to the gospel, hold to Jesus. Uh, the interesting thing about it all is that many of the uh, secular um, ideologies, even the, um, you've seen the yard signs, the, the rainbow yard signs that uh, say um, all, all uh, what's, um, 
Black Lives Matter, all uh, human, all LGBT are human rights, women's rights are human rights, water is a right, all these other things. Um, it's interesting that even that yard sign by itself does not exist apart from a Christian worldview. Now, why do I, how, why do I say that? Well, I don't have time to unpack that, but it's built into a con- some, some objective realities, isn't it? You're making some objective claims about reality, what is right, what is wrong, and it is not saying, I feel this, therefore, uh, I, I think that's what it, the way it should be. It's saying, no, this is reality. This is the way things should be. This is the way things should not be. Um, Rebecca McLaughlin, in her very small but very profound book, The Secular Creed, unpacks this, how even the secular culture we live in relies on a Christian worldview to make its claims of, of what is the meaningful life, the purposeful life, the good life today. Uh, so I encourage you to pick that up. Uh, Genesis answers all these questions for us, helping us to uh, understand life in relation to our creator God, the God who put the world together with purpose and intentionality. Um, and one of the things that I've been highlighting through uh, this creative process, and we'll conclude this uh, today, is the progressive facets of creation. That God created human beings uh, in his image, then he created male and female very intentionally. Out of that, uh, gave the gift of marriage, the gift of sex, and the cultural mandate to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, flow out of that. And so we have this, these progressive facets or interlinking chains of uh, God's creation uh, pointing to the ultimate purpose we have to fill the earth and subdue it for the glory of God. All of this, by the way, is for the glory of God. One of the things that human beings do after the fall, well, even in the fall of mankind, which uh, preview of next week, um, not a good week. Genesis 3 is not a good chapter for us. Uh, we're not doing great. Um, as a matter of fact, this is kind of the last happy moment, pure, pure, 100% happy moment on earth uh, is where we are today. Um, but next week, human beings began to substitute themselves as the center of reality in God's place. And that's where we still do that, even today. Genesis 8, uh, 2, 18 through 25 is really about relationships. And if you've already, if you listened while the text was read, you've already heard of God creating Eve, right? And, and the idea of, of him, God giving Eve to Adam and marriage and all of that. And uh, we can jump right to the purpose of marriage in this text, but I don't want us to miss uh, some, some of these important facets of creation that are here. Um, actually, back, I think, in 2017, I preached an entire series on uh, five weeks one on each of these facets of creation. And so I don't want us to blow past these and jump straight to marriage because marriage doesn't exist apart from them. So let's start by looking at the idea that God gives the gift of community. And then we'll look at the equality and diversity of men and women, and then the gift of marriage and sexuality. So God gives the gift of community. Again, before we look at marriage here, let's not miss a foundational observation. God had made everything, right? Back in uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Uh, And last week, we looked at that. Um, We looked at that in in, uh, some detail, unpacked what that meant. Uh, But today's profound point uh, comes after God had made Adam, but before God made Eve. Verse 18 of chapter 2, beginning of it says, then the Lord God said, what? It is not good 
that man should be alone. God was recognizing that creation was not yet complete. He wasn't done. There was something lacking. If you look back into uh, scripture, or if you look at the end of, of chapter one, uh, everything was good, right? Uh, God said uh, at the end of each day, God, what God saw was good. Um, but now he's saying that for the first time, God is speaking and saying, this is a situation that is not good. He's pointing to our fundamental need for creation. Back in week one of Genesis, we talked about how God has existed, always existed in a community as a father, a son, and the Holy Spirit, a triunity, three distinct persons in one uh, essence. And so a triunity or a community, um, in, and God creates us, you and I, with that purpose of being able to be in community, in relationship. That's part of, not all of, but partially what it means to be made in the image of God. So Adam was alone. He had all the animals, even a dog, right? And you dog people are like, listen, I like my dog more than I like people. Um, and, and that's okay. I mean, God created dogs. I think they have a special place uh, as, as man and woman's best friend, right? Um, but they were not enough, your dog is not enough for you. I know you think it is. You got really close during COVID, but your dog is not enough for you. You need community. It is not, if it was not good for Adam to be alone in the Garden of Eden, a perfect community, a perfect environment, in perfect communion with God. And yet God said, it is not good that Adam be alone. It is not good for you to be alone either. So he looked around, there was no helper fit for him. There was not one, uh, not even the, the Labrador retriever was fit for Adam. So Adam was alone under the best circumstances. And it was not good. We are alone today. We are torn by an individualistic culture, uh, technology, um, and, and our pursuits and uh, busyness, right? I talked about this last week, so you can go back and listen to that, to that if you weren't here. But a modern life, technology, all of that keeps us at such a frenetic and busy pace. I don't know if you're aware of this, but like from your grandparents back, almost everyone lived in the town they, they were born into. They grew up in the town they were born into. They lived their entire life in the town they were born into or community they were born into. We are uh, so transient as a culture, throw in the busyness of modern life and the, the distractions of the internet and cell phones, and is there any wonder why we are lonely, why we are isolated? And it's not just having people around, right? You have people at work, you have people in your building, people at your gym, you've got your 600 followers on Instagram and your 800 friends on Facebook, right? But can we all admit that... that um, Proximity, both physical and digital proximity to people is not the same thing as community. You can be in the middle of a crowd of people and feel all alone, can't you? I have. We move around a lot, as I said, but maybe, and I understand that sometimes jobs uh, force you to, to move, but, but what's, what, what grieves me, and I, I, it grieves me, and I've seen this, is that you have people who move in who, who desperately want to have deep, meaningful friendships, but those deep, meaningful friendships take five years to create, and you live somewhere for three years and move on. 
it's, it's, like, um, it's like going home uh, with a bag of groceries and uh, having two minutes of time and a microwave and not understanding why you can't sit down and enjoy a lovely three-course meal. Because three-course meals take time to prepare. Just like relationships take time to prepare. You cannot microwave a deep friendship, right? It just doesn't work. Now, God can begin a deep friendship, but you can't get to that deep part until you've walked through some stuff together. And that takes time. So no wonder, again, we are isolated. But I see people who take job opportunities in uh, other cities, and, the, and it's just, they instantly jump at the job and they don't stop and ask, will I have the community I need to survive there? It's all about, well, this is a great opportunity for me in my career. That's great. That, maybe God does want you to take it. But I encourage you to stop and ask the question, am I going to have the people I need? Because you can find a job somewhere else. But you may not be able to find the people you need to live and do life with. Community is essential. We're made for it. Not just, and I'm, I'm argue this, not just biblically. Is it not good that we're alone? There is a mountain of research and evidence, science now, <laughs> sciencey stuff, that proves you need community. And yet we allow ourselves to get isolated, don't we? This is one of the reasons our community groups are at the center of who we are as a church. This isn't a strategy. Yes, in a sense, it's functionally one of the ways that we desire to bring people and connect them into the church. But more essentially, to be a Christian is to belong to the community of Jesus, the family of Jesus. And a family that meets together for an hour and a half on Sundays is not a healthy family, right? Imagine those of you that are married. You're like, I see my spouse an hour and a half each week great. We have such a wonderful, deep relationship. No. Those of you that are parents, like, yeah, I see my kids about an hour and a half each week. No. You need a relationship. You need deeper community. This is, by the way, why community groups should transcend also their just weekly group. Like, you should be connecting with each other throughout the week. I, I know it's hard, but even texting uh, and, and just grabbing coffee, seeing each other, for, grabbing lunch together, creating opportunities to connect help deepen that community we are created for. So God created Adam, and Adam needed community. So God created Eve so he could flourish and thrive for the glory of God. Secondly here, we want to see that God gives, in community, gives equality and diversity in gender. He gives equality and diversity. So God says, verse 18, second part of verse 18, I will make a helper fit for him. So this is a, the, the idea fit or suitable to him, appropriate to him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called them, called every living creature, that was its name. So the, the picture of, uh, of Adam practicing dominion here, naming the animals. The man na- gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And for, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him, suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. Now, our concepts of, of man and woman uh, are, are built into us at a very young age, intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, when I grew up in, in my concept, and, and it wasn't... Uh, 
purely my parents. It was also just the culture I was in. You know, little boys were, 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 were tough and played sports and didn't cry. Uh, and girls played house and were uh, sometimes emotional, uh, and, and, but never tough, right? They weren't supposed to be tough. These were reinforced to us, to me, as a small child. You had those reinforced to you as well. Maybe not the same ones. Maybe completely different ones. Um, and, and so we want to recognize that that plays into our understanding and our way of looking. Every culture has some framework of manhood and womanhood, and the phrases that go along with that uh, shape us. No one is untouched by that. We all have our preconceived notions. And this is why it's important that we step back and ask the question, if God made male and female, what does it mean? What does it mean that he made male and female? Apart from our uh, God's word, we see some cultures focusing too much on the differences as if the differences between men and women are far greater than what's in, what there is in common. And this is what leads to patriarchy, misogynistic tendencies, where men are supposed to be in charge and call the shots and women are supposed to be subservient. Uh, This denies the radical equality of image bearers that God made, it says in Genesis 1, very explicitly made them male and female image bearers. Then on the flip side, there's movements in our culture to erase all distinctions between men and women, and indeed to point to patriarchy and to call for some sort of uh, and, and toxic masculinity as a reason to eradicate all gender distinctions between people, uh, except what individuals assign to themselves. And you, you see the nebulous field we're in. We, we, have a, we have, on the one hand, almost a hypergenderism that says that uh, the differences are everything, The differences between men and women determine value, dignity, and worth. And then on the other side, there's no differences. There's there's no meaningful differences in any way, shape, or form between men and women. We don't see that in this passage. In this passage, we see a radical equality and diversity. God's not left us without understanding here. To remind us again, Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. The importance of this cannot be overstated. And it's often the core, uh, the core issue where women are mistreated or devalued at the hands of men. It's because men do not see the image of God in a woman as an e- a person of equal dignity, value, and worth. It is where cultures um, have kept women from voting or holding office. Um, it's a source of so much pain for, for many women. But interestingly, sometimes out of reaction to that, there's, there's a, the, like I said, the extreme to say there is no differences. There's no, we don't value those at all. There's no distinction between men and women. But the very valuing of women as equal with men does not come from our culture. It doesn't. Let me ask you a question. Many of you are scientists. How would you scientifically prove that a woman has equal value to a man? Or even that a man has any value at all? (laughs) Or that we have any value as human beings? You couldn't. So in fact, it's actually the word of God that gives us the foundation for saying men and women are of equal dignity, value, and worth. It's not our culture. It's God's word that lays that foundation. 
God built an equality with male and female, but he also built a diversity. We have a lot more in common than we have different, but that doesn't mean we, we are the same, right? The differences between men and rem, women are real and purposeful. These don't mean everything, but it doesn't mean they don't mean anything. God did not choose to make a generic counterpart for, for Adam, right? It didn't say he made Adam and a generic human who was just like Adam. No, he made a woman, a counterpart. And I can go into this, but interestingly enough, science backs this up for us. There's genetic differences on a foundational level. These show up in our physiological differences. Men are larger and stronger than women about 30, and have about 30% more upper body strength. Men's and women's vital organs differ in size and deficiency. Men have larger hearts and lungs. Women have larger livers, stomachs, thyroid glands, and kidneys than men. Women have a lower blood pressure and a faster heartbeat than men. Men are more hairy than women. This one article I said, I read said, after puberty kicks in, men develop giant musty patches of hair all over their bodies, often making them indistinguishable from the legendary Sasquatch of the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> Women are far less hairy and thus more fully human. <laughs> in athletics, men most of the time have an advantage, except where there are activities that require balance and long endurance. It's interesting that uh, you look at marathons, yes, 26-mile marathons, uh, men have an advantage most of the time. Uh, but if you look at ultra-marathons, you find that women will uh, compete with the men on ultra-marathons and will actually win them some. What does that tell you? It tells you the marathon's too short, <laughs> right, <laughs> to, for it to be equal. That, that, but that women have an endurance once you get past that, I don't know, 50, 75 mile. I don't know who runs that far anyway. Maybe, God bless you if that's you. I like driving my car that far. Uh, <laughs> But what, what does it say that reaching 100 miles, that it's actually the women are in those circles running with the men? There's well-documented research into the neurological differences. Uh, I do not have time to go into, but let's just say men and women think differently. And Jesus affirmed this creative design in Matthew 19, uh, verse 4. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Is affirming this idea of God creating male and female. Um, there was a God-glorifying purpose in creating them. And it's only because of the fall of mankind into sin that we have confusion, misunderstanding, uh, devalue, overvalue, undervalue, whatever the differences and equality of men and women. Only, I believe, when we uh, submit ourselves to the word of God, do we, are we able to keep in tension the beautiful equality of men and women and yet also celebrate the differences in diversity, that there's something good in it. These differences show up that God made for Adam a helper fit for him. Not just pointing to marriage. Again, when, when God created Eve, he didn't create Eve instantly as her husband, uh, as, as Adam's wife, right? Like she didn't come into the world existing as Adam's wife because the, it hasn't happened yet. So he created her different than Adam I would argue because in, in uh, the call to be uh, fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, we need both men and women. In society and culture and larger scales, we need men and women to be able to work together, bringing different skill sets at times, 
Um, though I think when you break it down to an individual level, that's much harder to kind of look at and go, well, that person you know, is, a, is a man, so he shouldn't do this or shouldn't do that. Or it's not, that's, not, that's not the point. The point is saying in our call to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, to image God in this world, men and women do that together. And on a large scale, it's rather interesting. You see some real trends in the areas and fields that women tend to go into and men tend to go into. And I don't think a, a culture that somehow makes it absolutely equal for everyone to go into every field is going to end up with 50% men and 50% women in every single field. And that's okay, right? All it does to me is reveal that God intends us to work together in different fields for the glory of God and for um, the flourishing of human life. So Adam didn't need just another human being exactly like him. He needed bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, equal but diverse. Finally here, the gift of marriage. God gives marriage, verse 22b through uh, 25 here. So God gave Adam, uh, Eve to be a helper fit for him. And I want you to hear this, ladies. That is not a derogatory word in the Hebrew, so do not read it as a derogatory word. The word helper only means helper. It means someone who has help to give. Right, And that exact Hebrew word in the Old Testament is used to refer to God on multiple occasions. God is our helper. So if, if it's a demeaning word here, it has to be a demeaning word for God. No, it doesn't. It just means one who has help to give, which means Adam needed help. <laughs> right? Adam needed help and God gave her to help him. And together they could actually carry out the cultural mandate. But this was the joining of them together as a husband and wife. God made Eve a, uh, as a suitable helper of her Adam and then performed their first wedding. If you read this, there's so many parallels with weddings today, by the way. In the garden, God gave his daughter Eve away and performed the first wedding. So God didn't hide Eve in the garden and say, Adam, go find her, right? Got a surprise for you. There's a naked woman out there. <laughs> he didn't do that, right? And he didn't, he didn't even create her in his presence, right? It, it, it says he, God brought Eve to Adam. That is a picture of a father bringing his daughter to give her away in marriage. God spoke the marriage, uh, marriage design into existence. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. You ever stopped and, and, and wondered... And, like, who said that? Somebody actually said that. Therefore, this shall be. It is, every commentator believes this is God affirming. God spoke the reality of marriage into existence, just like he spoke light into existence. Adam and Eve, interestingly, were separated at Adam's rib, right? But then reunited in marriage. So there's this picture of, of equality and diversity, but then being reunited in marriage. The marriage is a covenant, a promised relationship established by God. Matthew 19.6, on the lips of Jesus again, listen to what he says. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So he's quoting Genesis 2.24 here. And then says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate so here's the beautiful thing about marriage. God created marriage, period. Not just Christian marriage. 
He created marriage between a man and a woman. And in every marriage, I believe there is something fundamentally joined together in the sight of God. Therefore, you should not tear that marriage apart. Now, Jesus actually goes on to give some reasonings why, you can, why divorce is allowed because of brokenness in the world and sin in this world. And, and, but, but this text, he's saying marriage creates something God makes. Not two people, Christian or not. I believe there is a common grace marriage. This is, by the way, why looking outside the church, you can see people who don't even believe in God can have a good marriage. Because, there are, because common grace marriage is a reality. God designed us. In for marriage. And when two people go into it seriously and, and commit to each other, there can be a certain level of common grace there. And he says, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. This is a picture, right? Naked and not ashamed. That just like I, you're reading along this passage, and anybody that just kind of like jumps out, you're like, why? <laughs> Why did it just say that, right? Beautiful marriage picture, but they were naked and not ashamed. What, what, the, what the writer's doing here for us, and, and, and God, under God's inspiration, is helping us to see the beauty of absolute, complete vulnerability with another person, right? Complete and total vulnerability. And we cannot fully experience that today, even, I would argue, in marriage. It's difficult because of sin. Again, the preview of next week. In Hebrew, there are multiple words for love. One of the words, dod, uh, refers specifically to sexual love and, and is better referred to as love making or caressing. And uh, Paul House, uh, a, a New Test- or Old Testament uh, scholar, Hebrew scholar, uh, describes it as a word picture of two souls mingling together. This is hardwired into creation. This is God's design for human flourishing in this world. And if you understand biology, you understand very clearly that men and women were made to go together, right? And to bring mutual pleasure and joy to each other in that, in an act of intense intimacy and vulnerability. But it was to be protected and secure in the bonds of marriage, that, that vulnerability, that openness was not to just happen randomly with other people you may or may not even have feelings for, but within the bonds of a commitment and the freedom. Because how do you ultimately open your entire life and soul to someone uh, it, it, or how do you open up your body to them fully um, and not open up part of yourself, right? So God designed those two to go together. Full knowledge, full vulnerability, full openness with someone and physical openness and union with someone. And that is meant to happen in the bonds and safety and security and freedom of marriage. Genesis 3, it's interesting. Right after Genesis 3, we begin to distort sex. An absent of a loving relationship with God, so in this intimacy of understanding who we are made in his image, living out in this world, we will as human beings take the most intense feelings we can find and turn them into a God themselves. And so orgasm is a God in our culture, right? Therefore, you get to do whatever, whenever, however, whoever brings you that orgasm, right? Rather than understanding our bodies were not meant to be flung at other people indiscriminately or based on whatever arbitrary feelings we may or may not have, 
but to be given to another person for life. And they likewise do the same. Now, the beauty of marriage is that this is God's plan for human flourishing to carry out the cultural mandate, but it's not the ultimate reality for marriage. The New Testament goes on, and, and we don't have time to read through it, but you can look at Ephesians 5, 20 through uh, 33, and it pictures that marriage actually, and it cites Genesis two twenty four. Paul says, uh, quotes this passage in, in connection with it. He says, marriage is actually meant to the point to the relationship between Christ and his church. And if you look in the New Testament, later on in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, there's a giant feast in the new heavens and new earth. But it's not just a fe- feast, right? What is it? It's a wedding feast. Christ, the bridegroom, is coming again for his bride, the church, and will bring us into that feast to enjoy with him. And at that point, all marriages will cease to exist. Now, I know, don't get super sad. You, I, believe there, I believe fully that you will know your spouse in the new heavens and new earth. It's just your marriage doesn't, isn't there to serve a purpose anymore. So your marriage ceases. But you know what exists? The same thing that exists right now between every person, every Christian in this room. A familial relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, my wife, Teresa, wife of 28 years, is not going to be my wife in the new heavens and new earth, but she will be my sister in Christ. And I believe we will get to enjoy the depths of our our friendship and relationship that we've had. And so how much more important right now, and this is one of the things you see in the New Testament that's so beautiful, the primacy of the family in Christ over even the biological family. So I would say this, if you're single today, um, there's a picture that you are a sister or a brother in Christ to everyone in this room, married or unmarried. Every person who's a follower of Jesus in this room is your brother or sister in Christ. You have a family. Now, I'm not saying like don't desire marriage. It could be a good desire. Um, but, but don't feel like God's shortchanged you. The only, only issue we may not be great at is helping you to know that and to feel that, that you are truly our sister or our brother in Christ. That's what we ultimately need, is not even marriage. It is that family, that community that Christ creates. I realize, uh, I realize during this message, questions may have come up about the LGBT community, or what about a Christian who has same-sex desires or struggles with gender dysphoria? Uh, these are completely legitimate questions. Um, I wanted to hold up Genesis as the picture Right of what God created, um, and and try not to like take a lot of time to to uh, unpack these things because they deserve time. Um, but I will say this: it is important to note that the church is not supposed to act like the moral police of the world. Jesus didn't say, "Go therefore unto all nations and stop people from doing things." Right? That's not the Great Commission. Um, the Great Commission is to make disciples to point people to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean God, God's word doesn't have a vision for human flourishing, but that uh, the ultimate need of everyone outside this church, regardless of any other conditions, is Jesus. That's who they need. This is why we don't lead with our, our sexual ethic, right? It's not, it's not the point. 
Listen, even if you could convince someone outside of the church to go, well, I'm doing this thing, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend or whatever, uh, like to stop that, they're no more a Christian than they were before that. What the world needs is Jesus, Jesus, not moral correction. No time to deal with this today, um, but I want to give a, um, a resource to you, uh, recommend a resource to you. We, back in uh, April, we had uh, Rachel Gilson, um, who is an author of the book Born Again This Way. She came and did a session on, um, she, uh, on uh, God, gender, and sexuality. She, she is a same-sex attracted woman, um, has been uh, almost all her life. And uh, she comes and shares her story and also kind of unpacks scripture. She is an author of Born Again This Way and is on the like, National Council for InterVarsity. And she happens to live over in Cambridge, so we had her come over. Uh, we have videos of those sessions. We're going to send those out to community groups this week. And I encourage you to watch those. She just does such a winsome, incredible job of walking through things and helping, helping uh, us to, to think through those as Christians. I want to close by speaking to you as, uh, or challenging you as married couples, and then we'll pray. Um, if you are married here today, your marriage means something. It matters. It matters how you treat your spouse. It matters how you value them. It matters what your marriage is about. Your marriage is supposed to point people to the love of Christ and his church. You should be taking that seriously. Listen, I've been married 28 years. I know it is so easy to just put it on autopilot. Uh, listen, they're always, uh, you'll never get this thing like into a sweet zone and keep it there. Seasons change. Life gets hard. One person's job is, is, is hard and horrible. Kids show up. They grow up. They leave, right? My kids have left. And so now it's just two of us. We're like, okay, this is great. How do we, what do we do with this, right? <laughs> um, we, we love each other. And we're best friends, but we're trying to figure out this new season of life for ourselves. And so I just want to challenge you, listen, as husbands and wives, you are just as capable of sinning against, you, against each other as any human beings on earth, maybe more so. And so I would guarantee in this room there is some sin between you and your spouse, either something you've left undone or something you've done. And so I encourage you to take these few moments before we take communion to, to pray with each other and and confess things if you need to and then take communion together in joy knowing you are brother and sister in Christ redeemed by him forever let's go ahead and stand I'm going to pray uh, we'll move into our time of communion together we'll take uh, we have to take communion out in the hallway if you're um, new we, we can't have food or drink in here so we have to take it out there uh, anytime over this next song if you're a follower of Christ you know where you stand with him uh, you can come to the front, kind of make your way out the side here and then uh, around outside, take communion there and come back in. If you're not sure where you are with Christ, you're not a Christian today, you can either walk with the people around you, you totally can do that, just not take communion out in the hall uh, and just circle back around or you can stay where you are, be seated, pray, whatever God leads you to do, sing. Um, let's pray and then we'll respond together. <clears throat> God, we've covered a lot of ground in your word today from the incredible reminder that it is not good that we be alone to the, the beautiful mystery of you creating men and women equal but diverse and to the gift of marriage. God, I pray that you would help us to rest 
in you, to, to rest in your vision for human flourishing. God, to embrace that as you would have us to, whether that is individually we are disconnected right now and we need to press into community or whether it's our marriage that needs help, needs prayer, needs support. God, whatever it may be, Lord, speak to us. We're grateful that we don't come today based on our moral performance, but on what Jesus has already done on the cross for us. So we thank you, Jesus. Thank you that one day you're gonna come again and we will have the greatest feast there has ever been known in the history of the world. And we will be with you forever in perfect union. Help us look to that day. In your name we pray.